0: I'm going to jump right into the word this morning, and so grab your Bible and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, and I have a long way to go, so we're going to hit this as fast and furious as we can. So Ephesians chapter 6, last week we started a new series of messages uh, that we call Make War, Make War, and we talked about the reality of spiritual warfare and we're going to read it in just a minute, but but what the Bible indicates to us is that there are realms. In fact, there's what, what most people call a spiritual realm or a realm of the heavenlies or the heavenly realm. And then there's the natural realm of earth. And what, what we have to orientate ourselves to is the spiritual realm is actually more real than the natural realm that you and I are so... Um, familiar with. See, when Adam and Eve fell, they lost all their spiritual sight, their spiritual senses. And and after that, all humans just thought, well, this is all there is. You may know people that maybe they're not believers and, and they're like, no, this is all there is. And after this is over, that's it. But what the Bible tells us is, no, this is not all there is. This is a very short little blip on the time frame of eternity and that we're spiritual beings having a temporary, phys- temporary physical experience, but we're spiritual beings. And the way God created these two realms in the beginning, he said, I want the heavenly realm basically to be the control center or to be the authoritative force that shapes the earthly realm. That's why Jesus told you to pray Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Here's, Can I give you the job description of a believer? It's to make earth look like heaven. It's not to pray a prayer and wait until you die so you can go to heaven. That's not really good news. Because, see, I'd like good news today. The whole idea that, well, you know, when you die, everything gets better. Well, let's pass out the Kool-Aid and expedite this process if that's all we got to look forward to, if that's the only reason that God made us is to die, but God didn't make us to die. He made us to live forever, and he made us, he made us with the job description and the responsibility to make earth look like heaven. That's why we pray on, on earth as it is in heaven. And so the, the heavenly realm actually, um, actually greatly impacts the earthly realm, and so there's actually a war in the heavenlies, and we see the effects of it on the earth. What we see as divorce and addiction and all those things is just a war in the heavenlies. It's just, if we're not careful, we don't understand that's what's going on. And we'll actually try to fight spiritual battles with fleshly weapons, like the words of our mouth and our actions and our attitudes. And are you with me? And so Paul talks about all these things uh, in a couple places. We're going to look at them together. But, but what we have to understand, so we're in this spiritual war, this spiritual conflict. And there's not an option, by the way, to not be in the war. You, you were born on a battlefield. I know the song said love is a battlefield, but truthfully, <laughs> truthfully, earth is a battlefield, right? And you were born on the battlefield and there's no little place on the battlefield to go, I don't want to participate in the war. <laughs> Sorry, doesn't work that way. There is a war and you're born on the battlefield and you're born to be in this war um, and the enemy's going to war against you, whether you ever war against him or not. And so welcome to the war zone. Right. Does that make sense? And so we talked about that last week and I can't reteach all that, by the way, um, until I preached this message last week was the best message I'd ever preached. And so then that's not what I said. That's what you said. And so anyways, so you'll have to go get last week's podcast because I can't reteach all that. And I've got a lot to teach today. And so Paul in Ephesians is talking about this spiritual war. And actually, I think Paul and I talked about this last week. Julie and I were having this conversation, and, and she said, I think the whole book of Ephesus is about spiritual warfare. And when she said that, I said, oh yeah, I, I think you're right. And here's why, because chapter one is we're blessed with all spiritual blessings. That's that's our possessions. Chapter two, we're seated with Christ. That's our position. Uh, chapter three, he said, I pray that your understanding be enlightened, that you may know the power you possess, our power. Uh, chapter number four talks about our responsibility. Chapter number five says, walk as children of light. It talks about our walking in this war zone. And then chapter six, after he's laid all of that foundation, he comes to chapter six And he says, now finally stand. And we talked about last week, you got to make your stand. It's not enough for your pastor to make a stand. It's not enough for your life group leader to make a stand. You have to make your own stand. Not enough for mom and dad to make a stand. You have to make your own stand. And we talked about that last week. And so I realized Paul is laying this foundation. He's in a Roman prison. um, And he is laying this foundation of spiritual warfare. And he works those five chapters to get us to this place uh, where we finally, he says, we got to stand. We got to stand and we got to make war. And he talks about the weapons of our warfare. So we're going, to, we're going to look at a lot of different things, but most of it's going to come from Ephesians chapter six, verse 10, kind of where we started, but we're going to go a little bit farther this week. So if you're there, Ephesians six, verse 10, it says this, it says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then verse 11 is really kind of where I got my title. It says, put on the whole armor of God. So when you when you start a sentence with a verb, there's an assumed noun or pronoun that is called an assumed you. Do you guys remember this? So essentially he's saying you put on the armor of God, you put on the armor of God. Um, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, I know when people tell me, and as a pastor, I hear some some kind of interesting things. You know, As a pastor, you hear really interesting things, and people say, you know, pastor, I, I've been meaning to keep up with my devotional life and pray, and but I just, you know, I get so busy, and I just don't have, have time. And pastor, we know we need to be at church, but you know, I mean, it's just, that's our family day, and we like to go to the lake and and all that. Hey, I'd like to go to the lake too. You know, I would. I like the lake, really. Um, uh, some days uh, when we're in, in crazy seasons. I like the lake sometimes better than some of the other things I do. Um, but, but what I realize see, is that there's a devil who is strategizing for my destruction. And once you understand that the devil isn't really here to play patty cake with you, he is here to destroy you, all of a sudden your priorities are supposed to shift a little bit. Like maybe life group's more important than I thought. Maybe church is more important. Maybe my devotional time may be the most important 30 minutes of my day. When I realize that there is a demon in hell that is probably assigned to me to learn me and destroy me, that's the strategy and the scheme of the enemy. When I realize every day I wake up, there is a force that is trying to take everything I have and destroy me because I look like God and I say I'm a part of the church. And so I'm I'm, I'm lined up on the opposite side as him and I'm his enemy and he wants to destroy me. He say, well, people in the world, they people in the world, he's already got them. He doesn't have to war against them he has to just keep the chain tied on them you he's got to try to get the shackle back on you do you understand what i'm saying there's a war going on we can't play patty cake with it so praise the lord he has schemes and strategies verse 12 it says for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood you're not fighting against people but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's our war in the heavenly. It says, therefore, now this is what we'll are get to in, in this message. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to be withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened, this is, he's going to talk about what believers call the armor of God. It says, stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes as for shoes, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I'm going to cover four ideas that we really kind of see throughout Paul's writings and most specifically here in you could write these down because I'm going to give you a lot of information. Now, I'm be honest with you, you're not going to get it all. Um, I, had to, I had to put two messages in one because I can't change the date of Easter. And so, <laughs> and so, so you're not going to get all of this. You will have to get the podcast. And some of this, you can't go get a book on it because I haven't written it because I've never seen any. Of it. Some of this I'm going to tell you I've never read, never heard, never seen. And so you'll just have to take good notes and get the podcast. Does that sound good? All right, so four ideas I wanna get across to you that I think Paul's explaining. Number one is this, Paul is talking to us about the scope of the battle. He's talking to us about the scope of the battle. He says, Ephesians 6, 10, finally be strong. And notice he says in Ephesians 10, finally be strong. And, and he, he says, in the Lord, in the Lord, in the strength of his might. By the way, if you're bored and wanna do an amazing Bible study, take the book of Ephesians and find every place where it says, in him, in whom, in Christ right? If you look at the end, who we are in Christ, in him, in whom you have, right? Eternal redemption. So finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Now, what is he saying here? Because let me just dial this in so that I can give you the nuts and bolts of it. Spiritual warfare is all about maintaining the victory Christ has already obtained. Okay, so here's the scope of the battle. The enemy's going to convince you that you have to obtain something that Christ has already won. So he's going to convince you that you have to obtain a relationship with God when Jesus already paid for you to have a relationship with God. He already won you a relationship with God. Now it's by grace through faith. It's not through the law. It's not through performance. It's not through your works. He's going to convince you that you have to be good enough for God to bless, that you have to be good enough for God to heal. He's going to convince you that, that you have to do something so God will prosper you instead of understanding, I'm working from victory. I'm not working for victory. And so the enemy's strategy is to try to convince you that you don't have what Christ won. If he can convince you that you don't have what Christ won, you'll spend all of your energy trying to win something that was already won, and now your faith has been marginalized. Are you with me? So so the scope of the battle is he's going to try to convince you. That's why, listen, that's why understanding what's in that Bible is very important, because the Bible tells me what he won. And when I know what he won, I know I get to stand in what he won. That's why Paul says stand. Stand in what he won. You don't have to win. You have to stand. You have to maintain the victory Christ has obtained. Does that make sense? So we fight from Christ's victory, not for it. That's why he says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. So essentially what happened 2,000 years ago was there was a governmental overthrow And now there's a new kingdom that's been established on earth. And now we are authorized by that king to establish his rule because the old regime has been overthrown. Do you see what I'm saying? Victory's been won. We've been authorized to colonize this planet with heaven. you see what I'm saying? Under the authority of our king. And so now we're just driving out the enemy from all of his strongholds. Does that make sense? And we have the authority to do that. So, so that's the scope of the battle. Here's the second thing there's the field of the battle. So there's the scope of the battle, and there's the field of the battle. Now, to understand the field of the battle, we're going to jump to what Paul says to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. It says, For we walk in the flesh, but we don't wage war according to the flesh. You can't fight a spiritual war on Facebook. Amen. Amen. <laughs> that's good preaching right there. Tweet all you want. The devil don't care. (laughs) It says, for the weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. And he says, we destroy arguments. We destroy lofty opinions that are raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive. So, so look at this. So there's, there's thoughts, there's arguments, there's opinions, and then it gets to strongholds. What are all of those things? They're all in the mind. They're all in the mind. You see, spiritual warfare takes place on the battlefield of your mind. That's where he wars. That's why Paul talks about the fiery darts. He's shooting darts at your ma- at your mind. He needs you to think like him. Jesus paid so you could think like God, and so the scope, the battlefield is always the battle of your mind. Um, I always uh, I tell our staff all the time. Um, I said, you know, the best thing you can do is don't think they think. And what I mean by that is there have been, there's awkwardness created in relationships that are lost because I think they think this about me. Well, go ask them what they think about you. Then you won't have to think they think. Well, I don't think that they like me. Well, go ask them. They could just be having a bad day. Well, I think they're offended at me. Well, go ask them because they're offended. You need to fix it anyway. Don't think they think. Anytime we think for other people and feel for other people without involving other people, probably we're in a war zone. We're not going to win. Right? Don't think they think. Go ask them. Right? (laughs) And so the battlefield is always... It's always in the mind. The source of spiritual battles is rooted in the mind. Now, the enemy is always working in four areas simultaneously. He never stops working in these four areas. The first area is this. He will never stop warring against the individual. Peter says it this way. Our adversary, the devil, roams around like a roaring lion seeking someone he can devour. Satan is looking for the easiest one to pick off. He's looking to pick you off. That's why if you really... Have you ever watched National Geographic when the lion eats the sheep? Some of you are like, oh, I, yeah, I, yeah, it's pretty, yeah, anyways, don't YouTube it if you've got a weak stomach, but do you know the one the lion always picks on? The one that's outside of the group, right? Like, if I were you, I'd get, I'd get in a life group, like, right, because if I felt like I'm kind of on the outside, people don't really know me here, and I just want to keep my privacy and keep my space, then I'd be looking like this. Because there's a lion crouched somewhere. If I were you, I'd be like, excuse me, pardon me. I'd be going through the herd like, excuse me, pardon me. I'm going to get to the middle of this thing, right? Because I ain't going to get eaten by nobody. I just work my way. So he's always warring. He's trying to destroy destroy you individually. He's always warring against the family. A lot of times when I counsel couples, and I don't counsel them anymore, but um, I'll meet with a couple, and then we'll send them to a counselor or something like that. I'll say, hey, the day you got married, You put the image of God back into the earth, and Satan hates you, and he hates your marriage. So obviously, your marriage isn't going to get a free pass because it's set against the enemy, right? So let's just realize, because you're married, you have a level of spiritual attack. Same thing when we hire someone at the church. I say, hey, you're joining a church staff. You have a level of spiritual attack you're about to experience, When I I counsel pastors that say they want to start a church, they say, hey, what's three things you could tell me? I said, number one, you're not ready for the spiritual attack because I was an associate pastor and then became a senior pastor. It's not the same. It is more hellish. It is more brutal. I said, number two, here's the second thing, is you're not ready for the emotional abuse you'll take as a senior pastor because the people you're going to sacrifice yourself for are going to stab you in the back. And that's emotional abuse. They're going to attack you on social media. They're going to attack you. And so you, you just need to be more resilient emotionally. You need to be healthy emotionally. And you need to be understand when they stab you in the back, it's really the enemy and they were just deceived. And then I said, nextly is you're going to have to learn to catheterize your own heart or you'll never do anyone any good because the first staff person that stabs you in the back, the first leader that stabs you in the back, you'll create a bias against your staff and against your leaders. And when Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they'll see God, that word pure in heart actually means to catheterize your own heart. You have to cleanse out your own heart and keep the bitterness out, the judgment out. You have to keep all that stuff out, right? That'd be a good message. But anyways, um, and so, but here's what you had to understand. You got a level of spiritual warfare because you got married. So he's against you because you got saved. He's against your marriage because you got married. The next place he's always working is the church. I don't know if you know this. Sometimes I think, I think believers, we forget this. Satan hates the church. Let me be more specific. He hates Pathway Church. Right? Last year, we had nearly 400 people receive Christ at this church. They made eternal decisions at this church. Do you think that goes unnoticed in hell? That was kind of always my goal growing up. That when I woke up in the morning, I wanted all of hell to go, oh crap, he's up again. My God, why won't that man stay down? I'm probably not there yet. There's probably not a wanted poster in hell for me yet, but I'm working on it. Amen. But you need to understand, he works against the church. How does he work against the church? Strife, disunity, discord. What does he use? Dissension, deception, gossip. It's, and you know, when you've done this as long as me... you always see the same things and it's just we fall for it every time. Somebody said, I'm gonna make, the enemy's got new strategies. No, he doesn't because the old ones work. He's not a creative being. He can't create new stuff. He just uses what works, right? See, what he knows is God cannot and will not move in an atmosphere of disunity. Disunity is set against the kingdom. The highest value, the highest priority in the kingdom is always unity. We have a God who is three in right? Jesus prayed, John 17, Lord, God, I pray that they would be one as you and I are one, because until we're one, the kingdom doesn't happen. It's not a message of uniformity to have unity. You need diversity, but it is a a priority of unity and unity has to be contended for because you're going to think they think, right? I'm going to think they think. And uh, you know, I, I heard this about the past. You'd be amazed what I find out about myself from people, like, I I never said that. I never did, like, what, where'd you hear that? Well, you know, it's out there. Well, there's a lot of stuff out there, right? I never forget, um, <clears throat> because here's what happened, and I've seen this so many times. People can be plugged into a life-giving church that's giving life to them, and most of the time, let's just be honest, most of the time, the leadership of the church, the pastors, the, they don't get the benefit of the doubt because there's been a lot of church scandals and all this kind of stuff. People have bad experiences, and so if they hear one negative thing about the leadership. They just assume it's right? I remember um, not too long ago, I was sitting in the office with a a lady in our church. She had emailed and said, I'm leaving the church, and she didn't give a reason. And so we follow up on that. I mean, people come and go, I understand that. People have to do whatever God's leading them to do. I don't have a problem with that. We don't manipulate people, and we don't own people. We'll send you out. If you want to leave this church, if you want to do it the right way, and you're in good standing with our leadership, we will anoint you, we will bless you, and we will send you to wherever God's sending you. We don't own sheep. We just pastor the ones God sends us. And, and so we followed up with her and she came in and met with Julie and just a few minutes, Julie buzzed me and she said, is there any way you could come in for just a few minutes and meet with this individual? And I said, sure, I'd love to. And so I went up and sat down with her and, and, and essentially she had decided to leave the church because she had heard some stuff from someone. And so I just asked her, I said, how long have you gone to this church? She said, four years. And, and I said, now, lay aside what you heard. Have you ever observed any unhealthiness from our leadership? Well, no. Have you ever had a bad experience from our leadership? Well, no. Do do you think I'm crazy? No. Do you think my staff is crazy? No. Because see, I have an elder board that if I get crazy, they fire me. Seriously, it's in our bylaws. They can fire me. Anytime they think I'm not doing my job or I'm unfit to do my job or I've disqualified myself from doing my job, they can fire me. And people say, well, elders, just do whatever you want. Go sit in a room with them. (laughs) That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. If you ever met our elders, they're all type A successful, strong personalities. It's a miracle we get anything done at this church because everybody that sits in that, we got five of the strongest type A personalities you can put in a room. Nobody rubber stamps anything at this church. And, and so, um, but anyways, I said, so you've never had a bad experience. You don't think I'm crazy. You don't think, you know, I can fire the staff if I think they're crazy. They're not crazy. I've had to let some staff go, but it weren't, they were crazy. They had issues they couldn't deal with. And, and uh, I said, but, but I've, you know, so you've never, no. But you heard some stuff, you decided to leave. Well, yeah, because if what I heard is true, It's an interesting statement. You know, if you listen to people, they'll tell you a whole lot. Most of the time we listen to respond when we should listen to understand. And, and I said, yeah, if it's true, yeah. And I said, you know what? If what you're telling me is true, I'm gonna resign. The only problem is what you're telling me is not true. I said, what you did is you heard from, there was a leader involved and we asked a leader to step down out of leadership. We did that because there was a pattern of unhealthiness in that leader's life. And it was creating hurt with other people in our church. And we're not going to allow people to hurt people. If I start hurting people, I have to quit too. Does that make sense? And so and so in this situation, it wasn't a big, we didn't think the leader was a bad person, but we had to pull them in and say, hey, we got this pattern. This is unhealthy. So right now we need to take a, a break from this leadership position. And then here's what we're going to do. We're going to rally around you. And we're going to provide counseling. We're going to pay for it. We're going to provide pastoral oversight, pastoral care, and I'm going to give you all the resources I can to help you win and to help you overcome whatever this pattern is. But first, we've got to figure out what's actually going on. Well, what happened is that leader, and it's a hard conversation with a leader, I understand, because let's, just, let's be honest about human nature for a minute, right? Um, we don't like to be wrong, right. and we don't like to be corrected. And I always find out when I'm your pastor. I'll know when I'm your pastor when we disagree, if there's submission or rebellion. That tells me whether we were just buddies or I was your pastor. Because I wasn't being mean. I said, hey, we're gonna provide all these resources to help you and figure out what's going on so we can put you back in leadership. We're gonna create a clear path for you to go back into leadership when you're ready, but we've gotta know you're not gonna hurt the people we're trying to heal. Now, does that sound evil? Does that sound mean? But what happens when that leader says, well, I don't want to submit to this because I want to do what I want to do and they leave the church. Well, now they can't go around telling people, well, I was hurting people and the staff pulled me in and they loved on me and they offered me all these free resources and was trying to restore me because that's not a good story. What they have to do is tell part of it while leaving out all the other parts because can we be honest about human nature? Human nature is when I'm offended, I want you to be offended for me. So what happened with the lady in my office, she got offended for this other person because this other person wanted her to be offended because it validated their situation. And can we just be honest in human nature? I I need you to know I'm okay, and sometimes the only way to convince you I'm okay is to convince you they're not okay. And so when I sat down, I said, well, did this person tell you this? Did they tell you we did this? Did they tell you this was a six-month process, that it wasn't hastily done? did they tell you this? Did they tell you we we arranged meetings of reconciliation with the people that this person had hurt? Well, no, they didn't tell me any of that. Huh? Go figure. But you're willing to leave a church that you've loved for four years because you heard some stuff and it might be true. Do you know what the Bible tells us to do? It tells us to go to the people, In fact, it says, don't entertain an accusation against a spiritual leader without a witness. Like if you want to accuse me of something, that's fine. You'll just have to come do it with an elder present instead of on Facebook or the phone. Or still inviting people to coffee to tell them how evil we are. Can can we just be wise to how the enemy works? Right? Can we be just, as a church, decide we're going to be wise? And if somebody tells you something about somebody in this church, you're going to do what the Bible says and say, all right, well, let's go talk to them. And if somebody tells you something about a leader in this church, you're going to say, okay, well, let's go talk to them. But I'm not going to take up your offense because that's not my responsibility. And I'm not going to leave a church because you're offended. I'm not going to quit eating steak at Saltgrass because you said yours was burnt. I'm sorry. They got to burn mine first. That's good preaching, isn't it? <laughs> I never forget, I was um, on staff at a church. I was young. I was about 20 years old. And uh, it was the first paid staff position I ever had. I was big timing. And, and um, I was the worship pastor, student pastor of this church. And I moved towns and, and went to this church. And, and, um, and I remember uh, there was this, you know, and, and anytime you're on staff at a church, you got to be leery when you're on staff and people start telling you how great you are sometimes they're nice people and they're being complimentary. And sometimes there's some other motive working and I'm smart enough to pay attention. And, and so this lady, I started to know she'd make these little comments. That I'm like, that kind of feels weird. You know what I'm saying? It just kind of feels weird. Cause there's people, you know, they're like, Oh, you're such a nice guy. Oh, well, thank you. And then there's people say stuff and you're like, I don't know how I like the way that feels. Like I feel worse now. And so sure enough, about three or four weeks into me being there, She came up to me and she said, I'm just so glad that you're here. Now, I'm 20 years old. The senior pastor's in his 40s. I'm so glad that you're here. I think maybe you can help our pastor. Right then, I knew we had a problem because I'm not dumb. And I said, oh, okay. And my thought was, let's leave it right here. But she didn't want to leave it right there. She said, you know, there's some things you need to know. There's some things I've seen. I said, hang on one second. And I grabbed the worship guide. We called them bulletins back then. I grabbed the bulletin. I had a pen. I pulled it out. I said, Tell me again your name because I'm new here. She told me her name. I wrote it down. I said, Okay, go ahead. She said, What are you doing? I said, Well, the Bible says if you have a problem with him, that because he's a leader, you're supposed to get a witness and go to him. So I'm going to write down everything you're about to tell me so that when I take you to him, I can quote you exactly. Because I'm going to be crazy enough to do what the Bible says and not take up whatever craziness you got going on in your life. So go ahead. You know, she never talked to me again. (laughs) And you know, my life was better for it. Sometimes we can use a little bit of wisdom and get a long ways down the road. So Satan's always working against individuals. He's always working against families. He's always working against the church. He's always working against the nation. He deceives nations. Here's number three. So we've talked about the scope and the field. Let's talk about the attack. Now, here's where you have to listen up because I'm going to tell you some things that maybe you've never heard. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. We just read it, but it says, We walk in the flesh. We don't war according to the flesh. Verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but they have divine power. Now, watch this. Because there, there's, a, there's a progression in reverse, if that makes sense. Um, we destroy strongholds, arguments, lofty opinions, and we bring every thought captive. Now, there's, so there's four things here, and all of them, look, war against the knowledge of God. In other words, the truth of God, the realities of God, right? all of them war against them. These are all strategies to separate you from what God knows. It's the same strategy Eve used in the Bible. She said, God knows that you're not going to die. Now, God had said, if you eat this fruit, you're going to die. And he says, no, 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 no. you're not going to die. God knows if you eat this. What was he doing? He was just separating her or or them from the knowledge of God, right? Because they did die. They were going to die. He just convinced them they weren't going to die. He separated them from the knowledge of God. So here's his warfare. Satan doesn't want you to know what God knows. He doesn't want you to know he's defeated. He doesn't want you to know that you have authority over him. He doesn't want you to know that God's going to bless your marriage or bless you or prosper you or increase you or free you or deliver you or help you or heal you. He wants to separate you from the knowledge of God, right? Now, how does he do that? Well, let's go in reverse. He thought he starts with a thought. And if we give enough, enough credence to that thought, it becomes an opinion, and if we give enough, enough time with that opinion, it becomes something we'll argue over. And, and if, it becomes, if we start arguing over it sooner or later, we'll have a stronghold. What is a stronghold? It is a fortified way of thinking. Let me explain that. The word stronghold is fortress. What's a fortress? Something is fortified and you defend it. The enemy wants you to have a way of thinking that's contrary to God that you will die to protect. All right, let me give you an example. People say, I, I can never be good enough. It's a shame and guilt stronghold, right? But Jesus despised our shame. He's declared us not guilty. He's justified us. But people will say, well, well, I'm not good enough, I'm never going to be good enough. I'm never going to be good enough to be a leader. I'm never going to be good enough, really to be saved. I'm never going to be good enough to be a husband, I'm never going to be. And, 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 you, and you can sit here and say, what well, Jesus says, He's made you good enough and he's taken care of all your sin and he's justified you, and I mean you can walk, walk them through with truth, and you know what they'll do they'll argue with you. Now I know I, that's for other people. I know that, right? What is it? It's a stronghold. They are now protecting a way of thinking that is contrary to God's knowledge. How about this? The victim mentality. Now, victims don't tell you they're victims. You have to listen to what they say. Well, everybody's out to get me. Well, nobody likes me. Well, no one thinks I'm any good. Well, I'm all by myself. And you can be a friend of a victim, be sitting there and saying, well, I'm for you. I'm right here. I'm not out to get you. And they'll say, you're not out to get me yet. What are they saying? I have a fortified way of thinking that I'm always going to be a victim and I will fight to protect a way of thinking that is contrary to God's truth. That's a stronghold. That's why, why Paul says we have weapons to destroy strongholds. we we'll talk about this, man. What do we have? We have the belt of truth. Right? Um, can, can I show you a pattern that I think is really cool? Um that Satan always works in deception. He's always trying to separate us from the knowledge of God, right? He deceives the nation. He's, John 8 says he's, the, the, he's a liar, he's been a liar from the beginning, the father of lies. When he lies, he speaks of himself because there's no truth in him, essentially, it's what Jesus says. So he always works in deception. He tries to make you think things that aren't true. Does that make sense? I found a pattern that I think could be helpful because I looked at the enemy's attack on Adam and Eve and the enemy's attack on Jesus. So it's the first Adam and the second Adam, and now we're all like a bunch of other Adams running around here, right? And I thought, if I found a pattern in the way he attacked Adam and Eve and the way he attacked Jesus, then that probably tells me how he's going to attack me. And so I found four commonalities. Would you be interested to know them? Okay, good, because I can go on, but it's pretty good. All right, so here they are really quick. Genesis 3, verse 4, it says, Then the serpent said to the woman, This is over the temptation. You're not going to die. God knows in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. All right, now watch this. Four things, ready? Number one, you aren't who you think you are. Watch this. You will be like God. Now, how did God make Adam and Eve? In his likeness and in his image. She was already like him, but the enemy convinced her, you're not who you think you are. He's always going to war against your identity in Christ, right? You're not who you think you are. Here's the second thing. God isn't who you think he is. God knows you're not going to die. In other words, he lied to you. Listen, the warfare is always when something happens in your life, here's the warfare. Is God good or not? Is God who he says he is or not, right? So you're not who you think you are. God isn't who you think you are. You don't have what you think you have. Hey, there's something out here that you don't have. And God said he supplied everything to you. There's a knowledge, though, that you don't have. You don't, right? You don't have what you think you have. Here's the last one. You need something else beside God to be successful. Right? Because here's what you need. You need this knowledge that God didn't give you if you're going to win. Every temptation of every sin is that one. You need something besides God. You'll feel better if you have another affair. You'll feel better if you have another encounter. You'll feel better if you make more money. You'll feel better if you have that house or that car or that thing. You'll feel better if your kids go to that school. You'll feel you need something else besides God. Then I looked at the temptation of Christ. So Satan comes to Jesus in the wilderness, and the first temptation is, hey, you're hungry because you're fasting. so tell this rock to become bread, and you can eat it. And Jesus says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then he took him up on a high place and showed him the kingdoms of this world, and he said, I'll give you all these kingdoms if you'll worship me. And Jesus said, worship the Lord God only, right? And then he says, then he took Him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, now throw yourself down because it's written that he'll give his angels charge over you that you shouldn't uh, dash your foot against the stone. In other words, God attests, God will catch you. And Jesus said, I will not tempt the Lord God, right? So there's a temptation. Now watch these four things. First one, remember the first one? First one is you aren't who you think you are. What's the first thing Satan says to Jesus? If you are the son of God. Was there any doubt who he really was? Would Satan even been there if he wasn't the son of God? Sometimes he is just so dumb. (laughs) You aren't who you think you are. Here's the next thing. God isn't who you think he is. Throw yourself down from here and see if God catches you. In other words, test him. You tempt God. See if he is who you think he is. He's not who you think he is. See? You aren't who you think you are. God isn't who you think he is. You don't have what you think you have. Here's the kingdoms of the world, and I'll give them to you if you'll worship me. And Jesus like, my dad has the deed. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You're trying to sell me real estate I own. And then the last one, you need something else beside God. Make this stone bread. Man doesn't live by bread. He lives by the word of God. Do you see that? It's the same four things. What do you think Satan's gonna do to you? He's gonna say, you're not who you think you are. God isn't who you thought he was. You don't have what you think you have, and you need something else besides God. Same thing he's going to tell you. That's his attack. And then here's the last one, his armor. So we talked about the scope, the field, the attack, and now the armor. Y'all doing all right? Is that good? Is that going to help you? So Ephesians 14. Now I'm going to show you something about the armor of God I've never seen before. And it's in the verbs. (laughs) Look at your neighbor and say, we're going to talk about verbs. (laughs) So I underline them. We missed the first one, but Verse 14, watch this. Stand therefore, watch this, having. That's a to be verb, right? So there are three to be verbs and three to take verbs. The, The verbs change, right? Watch this. Having fastened the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So there's the first three parts of the armor. There's six pieces, the first three parts of the armor they're having. Then in verse 16, we get to the second three, and we use to take. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. So you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. So you can put, and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So the first three pieces are the having, having your belt, having your breastplate, having your shoes, and then take up your helmet, your sword, and your shield. Change the verb tense. Why? Because the first three are our position. The second three are our pr- practice. When you divide Ephesians in half, the first three chapters are our position. The second three chapters are our practice. So the first three are, is our state of being in Christ. And the second three are the things we take up as we need them. It's kind of like a baseball player. When he steps onto the field, he has his jersey on, he has his hat on, he has his pants on, he has his cleats on. He's the state of being a baseball player. But when it's time to bat, he, puts on, he takes up his helmet and takes up his bat. And when it's time to play the field, he takes up his glove. He's always in the state of being a baseball player. But he takes up what he needs based on what the attack is. Are you with me? So the first three are position. The second three are practice. So in other words, we don't ever take off these things. Now, I've heard people, you know, I just got up this morning, pastor. I just put on my helmet of salvation, and I just put on my shoes of peace. Well, if that helps you, that's okay, but that's not exactly how it works. I mean, maybe with sugar plums and gumdrops and all that, you know, fairies and unicorns. Because these are not just fictionary items, Right? How, they're, they're they're literal realities. See, Paul's in a Roman prison, and he's talking about he's trying to tell the Ephesians how to win. And the Ephesians were in a jacked up culture, right? They had this temple of Artemis, this goddess of fertility, and they call her the, you know Diana, the goddess of fertility, and they have temple prostitutes and all types of craziness going on. And the church is birthed in this chaotic culture. And Paul's saying, you're not going to win unless you stand. In truth, unless you stand in righteousness, unless you stand in peace, and then you take up faith, and you take up salvation, and you right, and you take up the word of God, this is how you're going to win, guys. You're in a crazy culture, and you're not going to win unless you learn how to stay in this state of being and take up these things. So, so let's talk about the first four. So, first of all, the belt of truth. Here's what he's saying: stand in truth. Stand in God's realities, not your realities. Don't let the enemy give you relative truth about what's going on in your life. Stand in his truth, right? Stay, stand, that's what he says four times. Well, he says, stand three times and one time withstand. So if you're gonna withstand, you gotta stand. And what do you do? You stand in truth. Truth is not relative. I've heard Christians say, well, you know, I'm not so sure, you know. Well, I am, because truth is not relative. It's absolute. I'm not, I don't serve a relative God. I serve an absolute God, right? And so I, it'd be interesting. I, I've, I've watched, listen, I've watched Christians change their theology or their understanding of what marriage is because of the culture we live in. And, and here's the thing. Jesus called the church to offer unconditional acceptance, but not unconditional approval. So if you're here and you struggle with same-sex attraction or or, or you feel like you're a homosexual or you're confused about your gender, here's what you're accepted here, we love you. Unfortunately, I love you so much, I can't change the absolute truth of God's word about relationships and marriage. But I love you. And I'm not going to condemn you any more than I'd condemn a, a man who's struggling with pornography. It's all the same thing. Okay. So we're going to stand in truth. Do you understand that truth doesn't make you free? The truth, you know, makes you free. The truth, your husband knows won't make you free. And the truth, your wife knows won't make you free. And the truth, your parents know, and the truth, your pastor knows won't make you free. Jesus said, you will know the truth and it will make you the truth, you know, makes you free. And if I understood that I'd try to know as much of God's truth as possible. So he says, stand in truth. Second thing, put on the breastplate of righteousness. In other words, stand in God's righteousness and not your own. The enemy wants you to stand in your own performance. Right? If he can convince you, you've got to earn your place with God, earn your relationship with God, blah, 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 whatever, blah, blah, whatever. He wants you to stand in your own performance. And, and Paul says, no, you've got to stand in the righteousness of Christ. You've got to stand in what Christ did. All right? Then, then he says, put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. Now, this is a little bit confusing because people think, well, the shoes are peace. No, 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 no. The shoes aren't actually peace. The shoes are what connect you to what makes you peaceful. Because the old version says, you're having your feet shod with the gospel of the preparation of peace. That's kind of confusing. So I went to the NLT version to help us out. Ephesians 6 verse 15 it says, for, for shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so you'll be fully prepared. All right. So what does that mean? It means this. The shoes were actually shoes that had big spikes on them. And in a battle, you don't want to lose your footing. But what gives you stability is having the shoes, but it's also having the shoes sunk down in the right thing. What's the right thing? The gospel. Right? What's the gospel? Now, we think the gospel is all about us. We can die and go to heaven. That's not even good news. Do you know what the gospel is? Jesus is Lord. The gospel's all about him, not about us. By, by the way, the Bible's all about him, not about us. <laughs> right? Believe it or not, this whole thing's about him. Do you know this church is all about him and not about us? Do you know we're supposed to live all about him and not about us? And so here's what he's saying When my feet are firmly planted in the lordship of Christ, I'm going to have peace, no matter what happens. There's a war in my marriage, yet, yeah, but Jesus is Lord. There's a war in my church. Yep. But Jesus is Lord. There's a war in my finances. Yep. But Jesus is Lord. I'm always going to have peace when I understand Jesus is Lord. Right? So, so these are the state of being stand in these things. And then he goes on to take up. He says, take up faith. What is that? What I'm going to believe. What are you going to believe about what happens? Because you can believe God's not good or you can believe God works all things for your good. It's your decision what you believe right? So take up the shield of faith. Why? Because the enemy's going to fire darts. He's going to try to make you think what he wants you to think. Take up the shield of faith. Why? So you think the right things. And then he says, take up the helmet of salvation. Why? Because you need to think the right things. More importantly, you need a way of thinking that's like God and not like you. But we have the mind of, we're supposed to think like him. So we have to protect our minds so that we think like him. I'm not a victim, I'm a victor. I'm not enough, but Jesus may be more than enough. I'm not poor, I'm prospering according to the word of God. Do, do you see what I'm saying? I have to think like him. And then it says, take the sword of the spirit. Now I like this one because we get this mixed up because people think they grab their Bible and start throwing it around at the enemy. He's not scared of your Bible, he's read it. <laughs> The enemy knows the Bible better than you. He's had a lot of time to learn it. What what did he come to Jesus with? The Bible. He's well-versed in what it says. But you know, it says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we think that's the Bible, but the word in the Greek is not, uh, graphe would be Bible. It's the written word, graphe. Um, It's actually the word rhema, Rhema is the expression of God that I've heard, not what I've read. So what Paul's saying is if you're going to win, what the enemy can't defeat is not the word you don't know. He can't defeat the revelation you have. What I fight the enemy with is the revelation I have. Not the word I read, the revelation I have. So he's saying, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's the word you've heard. It's the revelation you have. When I tell people, if you're in a war, the first thing you need to ask God is, God, what do you say about what's going on? I need revelation from you. He's trying to separate me from the knowledge of you. I need the knowledge that comes from you. Now, I worked all that time to get to this. I called this message, you better suit up. You better suit up because you're in a war. You better suit up because the enemy hates you. You better suit up because you can't win if you don't. God has provided the armor, but you have to put it on. That's why Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. Put on. Now, how do I put on the whole armor of God? Well, thankfully, Paul tells me in a letter to the Romans. So Romans uh, chapter 13, verse 12 says, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. He's about to tell me how to put on the armor. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing. That's partying, clubbing. People are like, well, can you be a Christian and go to the clubs? Not a successful one. I mean, if you like getting your brains beat out and moving from one broken, empty relationship to the next, yeah, you can be a Christian and go to the clubs, I guess. I just never liked losing. So anyways, um, listen, if you're a Christian and you're trying to figure out how worldly I can be and still be a Christian, you're probably not a Christian. Let me just help you. Let us behave decently because, see, uh, Christians know the enemy wants to destroy them. They don't play patty cake with him. My God, that's good preaching. Okay, anyway, so let us behave decently isn't the daytime. Uh, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality. Someone said, I don't know, you know, especially our young people today, what is sexual immorality? Well, let me just do it the other way. Let me tell you what sexual morality is. Sexual morality is um, sexual activity with someone you're married to only. That's moral sexual reality, right? So sexual immorality is any type of sexual activity with someone you're not married to. Just kind of help. Anyways, uh, and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Now we get it this way. So here he's going to tell us, we've got to put on the armor of light. How do we put it on? Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Or the old version says, make no provision for the flesh. How do I put on the armor of God? I put on Jesus. Jesus is actually the armor. How do I put on Jesus. I crucify what I want and live life the way he wants. In other words, I surrender. The only way to win spiritual war is surrender. Surrendering to Christ. Are you with me? Are you breathing? So here's what he's saying. If you want to win, you put on Christ. How do I put on Christ? I surrender to his lordship. Not talking about He's my Savior. Now He's my Lord. And my Lord says I shouldn't be clubbing. And my Lord says I shouldn't be sexually immoral. And my Lord says I shouldn't be carousing around and acting a fool. My Lord says I should live the way He prescribes. And when I live the way He prescribes, I'm going to win. Any area of my life that is not surrendered to Christ is exposed to the enemy's attack. If I don't want to be exposed, I have to surrender to Christ. My God, that's good preaching. I'm going to get myself excited. I'm going to say amen to myself. Do you hear what I'm saying? And so Paul is saying, hey, put on Christ put on Christ. It's t- You better suit up. If you don't suit up, you're not going to win. How do you suit up? You surrender to the lordship of Christ and you put on Christ. And when the enemy says, hey, you're not who you think, you say, wait a second. I got the belt of the truth of God that tells me who I am. Hey, you're not who you think. I got the breastplate of righteousness. It tells me, hey, you don't have what you have. I got the shield of faith. And it tells me I'm an heir of God and a joint heir of Christ. Hey, God's not who you think. God is still Lord and my feet Planted in his lordship, I can win. That's good. Come on, give me one more shout.